0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz.
1: And I'm Alex Entner. In this episode, we're going to take a look back at one of the biggest media stories of 2016 that just wrapped up. Well, I want to say wrapped up. Stories are still going to be ongoing about it for a long time. But we're going to talk about the 2016 election. Now, before we begin, we want to say we are not a politics podcast we are not a partisan podcast. We are not going to dig into a lot of the results of this election.
0: But we can't deny that this is a story we've covered actually earlier in other podcasts. Because covered it
1: a couple times.
0: It is a big business story for media industries. Any election is, and, and this one was in the usual ways and in several unusual ways as well.
1: Yeah, to say this election is unusual is an understatement, but we're going to try to dig into a lot of the impact that this election had on media industries and some of the biggest stories that came out of it. So, and we're going to start in the arena of cable news. Amanda, what's our big story? What's one of our big stories coming out of cable news from this election?
0: Well, I think just that it was the biggest year ever for cable news networks. And so if we think back in the advantage of having an election in November, we've had basically 11 months of 2016 that have been full- of lots of things to cover. One of the things that cable news networks struggle with in a normal year is there being enough interesting news to kind of keep the focus on. And and there's just, I don't think there's been a day in 2016 that there just wasn't something that people were talking about related to the election. And as a result, the cable news networks have, have done well. They pulled in, according to a Media Post report, $184 $184 million in national advertising, which was up from $68.4 million in the same time period a year ago.
1: Now that number is from October 11 to November 10. So that is the prime period of the election where so many stories were breaking and there seemed to be October surprises left and right.
0: Absolutely. But I think we can't forget how busy and full of a year that this has been. SNL Kagan, one of the big financial media analysis company, predicts that ad revenue for the cable networks will reach almost $2 billion for 2016, up 15% from a year ago, or the, the more interesting measure, perhaps, up 25% from 2012, the last presidential election.
1: We're seeing an increase in ad revenue, which means more people were watching cable news in this election cycle or at least advertisers thought there was a premium a more premium audience in this election than the past one
0: well I think we it's not that as much as I think that viewership was just up if we think about some of the events the debates proved to be among the most watched events of the election and they
1: were among some of the most watched events of the year and some of the and the most watched debates ever
0: Absolutely. Uh, It's a record-breaking, with 84 million viewers turning into the first Clinton-Trump debate back in September. Um, But even if we think back to all of those uh, Republican primary debates, those were amazing numbers. And so it's really—it's not been an election that just took place in the last month or the last quarter, but this has been a solid story for all of 2016.
1: And even the Democratic debates were— having record ratings, even when they were opposite Downton Abbey and football and things like that.
0: So I think the other side of it, though, where we we start to look a little bit at both the business of media and the content of media is thinking about what kind of coverage did audiences see? And uh, I saw an interesting bit of data in a story that Forbes did covering the election overall. And they noted that through mid-October, the average amount of time spent across the broadcast networks, nightly newscasts, so we're not talking about cable here, just the broadcast nightly newscasts. Which
1: are still some of the most popular and biggest places where people go to get their news today.
0: The average amount of time spent discussing issues was 32 minutes. And just to give you some comparison, in the previous seven presidential election cycles, the average was 156 minutes. So, and and in 2008, perhaps the last heavily contested election, that total there was 220 minutes. So, so
1: substantially fewer minutes being spent on the issues of the election.
0: Right. And I think this, it begins to point in some of the many ways that this election was uncommon. Um, and I think that putting the broadcast networks that are struggling with trying to figure out what to do with a 24-minute you know, newscast, let's say, after we take out commercials.
1: I think it's even more like 20
0: now. Right in an environment where cable news is able to draw these viewers all across the day are
1: able to spread stories out for days if not weeks
0: The other part of this, and I think it's a tricky thing to try to figure out, is the fuzzy line that was blurred in this election between what we have thought of previously as social media and the more conventional media industries that are based around creating content. And so we'll get to that, I think, a little bit later. But I think that social media piece is one of the things we need to think about in terms of of why the broadcast networks would have been covering the election so minimally. I'm sorry, the issues issues of the uh, the election election so minimally.
1: Because I would argue that they were not covering the election minimally at all. And it brings up a question. Should networks be picking their stories based on what they think will drive business, revenue, and viewers? Or should they be picking their stories based on their own judgment and their own curation as journalists?
0: Well, I think I, I'm not sure if you did it intentionally there, Alex, but you raised that important distinction, and that again between broadcast network and cable news network, and the fact that the broadcast news networks are based on broadcast licensed stations, and as a result, they do have different expectations um, by regulation that we expect them to serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. And often at this time of of gear, when we're doing these sorts of wrap-ups, more attention tends to be focused on the affiliate stations and raising questions about whether the affiliate stations have provided enough opportunities for candidates to speak in a free forum and in terms of not something, not advertising that they have to pay for. seen much less of that in this case but those same public interest requirements i think should filter up to the broadcast networks at a national level
1: and i would even hope that they would filter up to the cable news networks because i their mandate is different from what i would hope their mandate right right.
0: that's i think hope is the operative word there it is (laughs) uh in we must be honest in understanding that in the united states cable news is it's you know as much of a for-profit venture as espn or lifetime or mtv
1: it, it's a really tough thing to kind of wrap my, wrap your head around because you it, i guess it's me kind of being a journal an old school journalist in even though i'm young kind of having that old school mentality of news should be news news should not be driven by the business ventures and the business interest there should be a line between who picks what goes on the air and whose job it is to make the money
0: right we may even have sort of this a generational distinction and i think viewers even younger than you may not even be able to draw this these lines with other media and so you know as someone who can remember life before there was cable news sort of like the idea that what cable news has been has been different is, is something that's that's more familiar let's say and and perhaps it is in the same way that we expect social media to be one thing based on our experience of it but in coming generations you know they won't have that kind of sense of distinction that that we've drawn for being able to remember a world before social media
1: and they might not even be using the same social networks that we know and use every day like who knows whether twitter will be around whether facebook will be around it's going to be a whole different the election of 2036 is going to be very (laughs) different from the election of 2016
0: without a doubt
1: but let's transition to a different story here. Let's talk about political ads.
0: Right. Normally, this would probably be our, our lead item if we're talking about business and media.
1: Well, that's because traditionally, political ads are how media makes so much money off the elections. the candidates will buy ad time both at a national and especially at an affiliate level
0: right. And so that this is one of those places where often it's a it's it's a different story for different stations in different parts of the country. So in the last few election cycles, Election spending is a huge thing in these purple states, as we call them, or the contested states, because almost all of the ad spending uh, gets focused in these markets where there is, a, there is uncertainty in the election. Uh, and those The swing states. Those, those paydays can be incredibly important for those stations because so much of their ad time gets bought up in this way. But political ads just weren't the big story this time around. The total that Kantar Media identified was that the, the presidential campaigns had spent a total of $336 million on television ads, um, with Clinton far outspending Trump $245 million compared to $91 million. And
1: I think that speaks to the strategies that the two different campaigns had. That... Right,
0: and I think we should—this t- was— unprecedented in terms of one of the many rules of political elections that was rewritten this cycle. I mean, historically you have to spend on TV advertising and... Historically
1: that's how you reach voters. That's one of the biggest ways that you traditionally reach these voters.
0: And so there had been a lot of discussion throughout the campaign sort of wondering about the underspend on the part of the Trump campaign and and what was going on with that, but here we have found a, a successful election strategy without comparatively much television ad spending.
1: And I, a part, I think a part of why he was able to get to where he was is the our kind of our next point, which is the free airtime that he received. Donald Trump received eight hundred and twenty-two minutes of what I guess we would call free airtime on news yeah. in coverage. And essentially, kind of the broadcast of his rallies, everything he said, it equaled 882 free minutes of airtime. On ABC, CBS, and NBC, it, grows, it probably grows substantially higher when you include stations like CNN.
0: Right, and just the comparison there, and this is all data that's from the Tyndall report, was that Clinton attracted, in comparison, 386 minutes.
1: <laughs> and in the primaries, Donald Trump got an estimated... billion of free airtime.
0: Right. So that that figure was from January 1 until Labor Day. So I guess the way in which this notion of free airtime would be considered is all of this coverage if it would have been paid advertising time. So if he had
1: paid to be on that channel at that point, that's what it would have been.
0: Right. And so that's, again, how this election was uncommon. Uh, I think part of that comes from certainly... There was a lot of spectacle around the Trump campaign and sort of in this transition from having not a traditional public figure who was having traditional public figure events. He was
1: holding huge rallies in these huge stadiums and it brought all the news networks, you know. CNN was going live to him right at the beginning of his campaign because they were wondering what he was going to say next and what he was going to do next. Now, whether or not that was a good thing is a question for... A more media analysis podcast to break down.
0: But the bottom line of it is, is that it's hard to know, right, what what the outcome would have been without that amount of effectively free airtime.
1: Let's dig into another really big part of this election that really made it different and uncommon. And it involves what we're calling a crisis in media literacy and a crisis in journalism.
0: Well, uh, there's a question mark there, right? So I think there right now are a lot of questions that a lot of news organizations are struggling with. And I think while we certainly did have social media in the last presidential cycle and even to a degree in 2008, we're certainly now in this post-mortem stage, identifying a range of uh, anomalies. And I, I guess in that category, I would put the use of social media to distribute what is effectively propaganda as news and basically anything of any piece of deliberate misinformation. And so whether at this point we're seeing the ways in which individuals were paid and this is where i think it comes in at an industrial level that individuals were paid to whether troll or to drive social media conversations
1: wh- or even they're just pay- posting fake stories for the sake of posting you know this fake story and the, the thing that happens when a story like that gets on social media is there's no hindrance to its spreading
0: Absolutely. Uh, the New York Times did a, a nice piece this weekend sort of going explaining in just one situation a, how the way in which a piece of misinformation that was not planted by either campaign became viral and spread and sort of how that happens. And I think there is that piece of just plain old misinformation spreading, but also the emergence of these non-news entities. And I think the thing that is unclear at this point is whether... They existed solely for propaganda reasons, in other words, to spread misinformation, or whether, you know, some of clickbait titles that were often attached to some of these pieces of misinformation, if they were actually aimed at trying to support a new sort of fake news industry and, and drive viewers and clicks to sites where most are any of the, all of the content is is not true. And so and this is kind of a tricky thing to wrap one's head around. And again, we're, we're not, I'm trying to not even talk about any of the content because I think we've identified that there was use of misinformation across the political spectrum, but this is really a new space to try and imagine like not news industries, right? We can't call them news industries. Because
1: they're not spreading news. They're not spreading facts.
0: Yes. And so if we're in an era in which you can make profit by driving traffic with fake information, I think is almost always more interesting than probably the real one.
1: Well, how do you think the onion succeeds? It's <laughs> that they're very clearly planting fake stories, but they're not... I, I think the difference lies in their satire. They're trying to yes. plant like an idea for the sake of a laugh. Whereas these new sites, the sites we're specifically talking about here, are planting a story for the sake of putting something fake out there onto the internet and out there onto social media.
0: Right. And so these are two early days to even understand what the implications may be for different media industries. I think one of the questions that is out there right now is really the degree to which Facebook is being called to account for its role as a distributor, Uh, Because historically, right, let's think about what Facebook has been. Facebook has been a, a source of personally developed information. Facebook's business model is not at all about owning intellectual property.
1: Even though it does take all of your content it posts as intellectual property.
0: Yes, this is true. But, you know, in this most recent election cycle, we've gotten to a point where so many legitimate news outlets depend on Facebook for distribution that I think Facebook and and many people who study media are now trying to figure out whether what seemed to be... it, It wasn't a clear line, but there was at least a difference between the notion of what social media companies were doing and legacy media companies based on IP, what they were doing, that that line has become blurred enough to to really wonder about whether Facebook is more like those other media industries.
1: I mean, Facebook, I think, still sees itself as not even a distributor, but just it takes the things that people put and it lets them out into the wind based on its algorithm. Like, I don't even think it sees itself In the same way like a TV network is a distributor where they're intentionally putting things into the hands of people in very specific ways. Facebook just sees itself as, I don't even want to say broadcaster because that implies a certain intentionalness behind it. But I think really kind of my opinion on this is if Facebook is going to have a hand in spreading content, It can't pull back and then say, oh, we're not responsible for the spreading of this content. Immediately after the election, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, oh, Facebook definitely didn't have a role in the results. But they've since kind of backpedaled, and actually them and Google as well have started placing barriers in front of these fake news sites. And quite frankly, I don't know. Is it enough? Who
0: knows? No, so we have a whole new set of questions that are just being raised. I think one of the the ones that I have, you know, that we'll only sort of see in time is whether or not this this was sort of an equivalent of the quiz show scandals for social media. And, and, and I raised that in terms of, you know, is this a fundamental point where people change their understanding about what these sources are like i don't have a great sense right now in terms of the polling data and some of the other um studies about the degree to which whether or not the fake news is being recognized as fake or not
1: and yeah, i i think that's one of the questions that's just starting to be raised and just starting to kind of even be comprehended just because it's so new and so recent we just don't have the best idea As to whether, you know, let's say you hear this ridiculous story about one of the candidates. Is it true? You might be inclined to believe it because it matches kind of what Mm -hmm. you think. And this kind of brings up the idea of the filter bubble, that social networks, they thrive on it. Their goal is to put content that you want to see in front of you. And sometimes that means filtering out things that you might not want to see, like, oh, I don't know, facts. (laughs) Right,
0: so so these are, I I think enormous questions that will continue to be explored. And so if we're tying this back then to questions of, you know, what does this mean for media industries? And I think a big question is what happens to journalism if viewers or or people who are using media do not care about whether or not it is factual or not? We've split into very fragmented entertainment communities, and there's no reason to think that we will not further split in terms of the sources that we use for information and some of those. And I think what's different from, let's say, the network era of broadcast television, in the network era of broadcast television, everyone was playing with the same sense of, of what is fact, what is fiction, what is news, what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is, it, it now seems to be possible for a continuum of,
1: of those. It, it's now possible for people to look at the camera and say, facts are what you feel on the inside, you know? Not that it's a piece of information that is factually true or factually wrong, but you can feel a fact isn't true if you don't like it.
0: I, I didn't see that, if that happened. And so one of the things in these early days, there's been some attention to subscription growth for some of the news outlets that do have a strong record and of journalistic for every, expectation.
1: For every attack that Donald Trump plants on the New York Times... There is a kind of... The New York Times has grown in subscribers. This is very obviously the bubble that my social media feed is. But every time I see an attack, I see like, a oh, now go subscribe to the New York Times.
0: Right. Well, I think another way to understand that is even, you know, I encountered some fake news in my feed and was, was... Oh, so did I. Right. And so the way in which I don't have time... Most of us don't have time to sort out the truth from the fact. And so I think... Sometimes
1: if you see a headline and it comes from, you know, a site that you might not know, but you're like, oh, sure, why isn't this reputable? You're going to just think it's true. And that's kind of... Myself as a comm studies person makes... Kind of wants me to take a step back and just be like, well, actually understand where you're getting your news from.
0: Right. And so... In, in an era in which people are faced with an abundance of news information ideas, at the core, you know, there's a, a set of information that I would like to know to be vetted by a certain set of journalistic standards. Or and, even
1: a certain set of information to know for when we go into the voting booth and actually have to cast our vote for one person or another.
0: And so perhaps in that environment, in the next few years, we will see sort of a clearer separation among outlets and that in some cases that will lead to increased subscriber support for those outlets that are, are known for particular perspectives. You know, and those all people around. who
1: support that perspective are going to go for it. Right. This election threw a lot into a huge sense of uncertainty, mostly because we just don't know what President Trump is going to do.
0: Right. So the the one of the outcomes of not paying a lot of attention to questions of policy throughout the campaign and sort of all of the issues that those of us who listen to Media Business Matters find you know important, they have heard. We've had absolutely nothing about them throughout the entire election. Yeah. <laughs> and so honestly, we didn't know where anybody
1: stood. And um, even if you followed other issues, there was a lot of back and forth Trump. Went back and forth on a lot of issues, and went sometimes went harder on an issue, sometimes was softer. I mean, he varied a lot, so it's hard to know what he's going to go in and do day one in the White House.
0: Correct, and so the first place in which uh, we're, we're likely to see some sort of effect is in terms of who he names as the first his new FCC chair, and then what happens with the other appointments. I think we would expect it's likely to. Be a more deregulatory FCC, a more
1: conservative FCC. I,
0: I don't know. Or do conservative I, I and think...
1: deregulatory go hand in
0: hand? So I think often I, when we hear the word conservative or liberal, we tend to think about content and like so. The George Bush administration, we might have called conservative because it was during that period of time that we saw so much more attention to content. You know, so that mm-hmm. was the post Janet Jackson, Saving Private Ryan, sort of attention to whether or not things were. Acceptable, right. Yeah. Um, you know, So I don't think we have any sense that, again, we don't have any sense of a lot. Um, but I don't think there's a particular reason to think that content is, is going to be something that the new FCC would be paying more attention to. When I say deregulatory, I and mean, yes, historically, and I'm saying that because historically Republicans have been deregulatory. That flies kind of entirely in the face of the only position that we heard can take
1: on any media story of importance: AT&T and Time Warner.
0: Right, which he came out against. The justification for his stance was unclear at the time, um, and that's the Republican Party does not usually stand on the anti-merger side. So I think the 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 total wash there is we don't know. I mean, the, the the total all of this section is is utterly hypothetical all we can do is perhaps point to some areas where media industries are going to be responding to a changed environment
1: and uh, the next one we want to talk about is net neutrality that there was a huge victory for people in favor of net neutrality a couple of years ago with the fcc decision to kind of push it forward
0: and I would even argue that, to a degree, that was it was uniformly valuable because there was considerable uncertainty about what the regulatory regime in the United States was going to be before net neutrality. And uh, uncertainty is a difficult place for any business to be in terms of strategy because
1: they can do one; they can kind of do whatever they want, and they're well, and
0: you're you're afraid to take action, yeah. right? And so, and and certainly the companies that have a stake in in net neutrality. This has to do with whether legacy companies are pivoting into providing streaming or not. A company like Netflix has huge stakes in something like this. So, uh, again, we don't know.
1: It could very well... Nothing could very well change from what happened before, or everything could change.
0: Exactly. So, uh, there's that. I think another place that questions exist is in relation to public media funding so public media in the United States do you remember
1: Mitt Romney in 2012 going I know you love Big Bird but
0: yeah it's the easiest way to go after it and and notably Big Bird has gone to HBO since then precisely (laughs) because there was not enough funding for uh, public broadcasting And so in in much of the rest of the world, the public service media is the counter, to go back to the point you raised earlier, Alex, about sort of being frustrated with issues of ratings potentially driving quote-unquote news operations, the one space that you get away from that is in public service media where the mandate isn't to have commercial dollars but to
1: inform the public inform
0: the public serve the public with the idea that the public is best served with legitimate information so it is the case that a lot of the a significant amount of the pbs and npr budgets are funded by fund drives and by corporations at this point
1: but not everything is they still receive a substantial amount of their budget from this public funding
0: right what happens with those budgets. And again, those budgets, that's not something that the president or the FCC acts on. It's that would, Congress. That would be, yes, congressional legislation. Which we legislation. do have now
1: a fully Republican Congress. Right,
0: and potentially a Republican president as well. And so that's the space in which that would be questionable. So, you know, in terms of other policies, Wheeler had a pretty activist FCC. He was working on new set-top box standards. That's, by all accounts, pretty much a wash at this point. I think there continue to be questions about even, I guess another area would be just the basic funding of the FCC. A lot of what the FCC has moved into in recent years is helping consumers make sure that they're not being taken advantage of by, let's say, their internet providers and things like that. Because often, like if you go to the store and you buy a gallon of milk, you can see, you know, yep, it's filled to the top. That's a gallon of milk, right? However, when we buy our internet, um, we don't. The only way we know if we're getting what we're supposed to be getting is uh, whether is if we the f- test it. Well, well, and often if the providers tell us, you know, mm-hmm. they say, "Well, no, you use that much." Um, there, they are. There's not a third-party measure here. No. Um, and so one of the things that the FCC had been moving into was conducting regular audits to make sure that billing was occurring properly and, and giving a place for consumers who were being misbilled and and feeling, you know, finding that they're having problems with their service like this is that experience like if you're watching Netflix and it's hanging forever and you don't know you know is it Netflix that's having trouble is there something going on with my Apple TV or is is it my Comcast is it
1: something with the internet is it something even beyond your house with Comcast as a whole you just don't know where the issue is anywhere from when it leaves the server to when it gets to you
0: right And so to the degree that, you know, some in the Republican Party have little use for many government agencies, it's it's just unclear what, what will happen next with the FCC. And certainly it is an agency that has only grown in importance as various aspects of internet and broadband have become more and more part of our daily lives. And so the thought of budgets being more constrained would have significant implications for what that agency could do.
1: That wraps up, or kind of uncertain, kind of nervous, kind of just throwing our hands up in the air and being like, we don't know what the hell is going to happen.
0: Well, I know uh, it's one of your great frustrations in terms of a lot of times the, the things that I will and will not talk about. You know, <laughs> I, I I won't prognosticate. I don't want to talk about things that we're not sure that they're happening.
1: Um, all we can do is raise the question of, you know, what will happen.
0: <laughs> so in, in coming issues, where in coming episodes, once we have some sense of policy and things like that, then we can digest what they might mean for different media industries, but not so yet. So I think it's time though for what are we
1: watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching this week?
0: Oh, nothing... Well, this and that. I'm still working my way through season two of Outlander.
1: Haven't you been talking about that for like six months now?
0: It it feels that way. Um, There aren't that many episodes. I think it it speaks to the fact that I've been working more than watching TV lately.
1: I feel that.
0: I did catch, though, uh, A Requiem for the American Dream, which is a documentary produced a couple years ago. It's mostly all uh, interviews with Noam Chomsky, and uh, I've got to say, it was informatively helpful for some of my processing of of what the current election indicates so I, I recommend that how about you alex what have you been watching
1: well because of the events of the past few weeks i've been trying to kind of go back to my happy place and i've been trying to go back to you know watching things that just give me a pure sense of joy and listening to things that just make me happy so i want to talk about two things today the first jane the virgin is back my favorite show it is so fun so sweet so genuine gina rodriguez is is america's sweetheart and i i just it continues to remain one of my favorite one of the things i love the most on tv um as it moves into season three i don't think all the stories are perfect but i still love watching it every week and i still get so much enjoyment out of it and then i want to as you might have heard on previous podcasts I do like this little Broadway musical called Hamilton, and
0: what is the Hamilton mixtape?
1: So I, I yeah, I'm gonna talk about the Hamilton mixtape. so what that is is it's a series of covers um and spin-offs of songs from Hamilton written and so it's covers by other artists okay. like Usher is on the mixtape. Usher sings a cover of one of the songs, Wait For It. Kelly Clarkson sings It's Quiet Uptown. They have Busta Rhymes doing a verse on my shot. There's a lot of different artists kind of coming in and putting their own spin on things. Now, I don't love everything on the mixtape. I think Usher's Wait For It isn't that great. I'm not a big fan of C is Satisfied, but what I really like is I like some of the spinoffs. There's one in particular that I want to highlight. It's called Rope My Way Out. It's by Nas and Lin-Manuel Miranda. They take two lines from a song called Hurricane, and they spin it off into a full hook. But I really just, I really enjoy that. And I think it's an interesting hook. It's an interesting way of kind of taking this show and making it new again. You know, Hamilton had kind of just fallen a little bit. So the buzz went from deafening to just noisy. And now with the mixtape, and even with you know the recent story involving Mike Pence's visit to Hamilton. It's gone back up to deafening again. So,
0: oh, well, and I think importantly, if we want to think about a media product like the mixtape, it's it's certainly something that's far more accessible uh, to yeah. a broader audience. And like and, the
1: cast recording, you're it, it's much easier to get a cast recording or get the mixtape than it is to get and go see Hamilton right now. Even as Hamilton starts to spread around, yeah. right now it's in Chicago and it's going to launch a national tour next year. So it is going to start working its way around, but...
0: But it's still pretty, and again, as we've talked about in, in the theater podcast, you know, limited to the number of seats there are in that theater every night.
1: And limited to the amount of people who can afford to spend the money that these theaters are going to be charging. Absolutely. That's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to listen to more episodes of Media Business Matters, you can go to iTunes and search our name. Or you can go to amandalots.com and click on the Media Business Matters link at the top of the page. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? At DrTVLotz, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Hintner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. We thank you all so much for listening. Um, If you do have any questions about anything we talked about today, you can email the mailbag at drtvlots at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to answer them on the air. So thank you very much, and we'll be back soon.